Time now for super psychologist, Dr. Mara Carpell, and your golden years. Good evening and welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years this evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And today is Sunday, April the 16th, 2023, and I'm psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell, and we are back live from beautiful Austin, Texas. And we have another great program in store for you today. And, of course, Art Mendoza of Accomplice Entertainment, producer of this program, is here with us to make the show run smoothly. In a little while after the break, we'll be joined by speaker, author, chair of the Public Policy Committee of the California Association of Long-Term Care Medicine and geriatrician, Dr. Michael Wasserman. And he'll be here to discuss some of the pressing current issues of geriatric health care and nursing home care, and also about advocating for our elderly in long-term care facilities. Later in the program, the great cellist Tanya Anisimova will be back with some of her music and to talk about Ukraine, and we'll be playing some of her music. And after the show, you can hear this evening's program again by going to my website and the link to the podcast, along with any website links that we discuss on the program, will be posted later tonight. And you can also hear the podcast in as soon as five minutes after the show ends by going directly to Blog Talk Radio, that's B-L-O-G, talkradio.com, slash Your Golden Years. And you can also hear it on Apple Podcasts five minutes after the show ends. And for information from previous programs to listen to previous programs, you can go to my website, drmaricarpell.com, or you can go to blogtalkradio.com slash your golden years, and it'll also be all of the podcasts for the last nine-plus years that we've been on Blog Talk Radio are also on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years, for upcoming shows and events. This show is produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions and sponsored by AMightyGoodTime.com. Wondering what to do after you're 50? How about having a mighty good time? It's free to search, free to post, and much more. Whether it's in person or virtual, anything can be found to fill your day connecting with other people. So be more active and start connecting again. Go to amightygoodtime.com. That's amightygoodtime.com. All right, we're going to take a brief break to play a couple of other sponsors' commercials, but it'll be very brief. So don't go anywhere because we'll be right back with Dr. Michael Wasserman to talk about long-term care and advocating for our elders. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back after words from our sponsors. 
Are you or a loved one a Medicare beneficiary? Help save you and Medicare money by stopping Medicare fraud. Fraud happens when Medicare is billed services or supplies you never received. There are three easy things you can do to prevent fraud. Review your Medicare claims for accuracy. Protect your personal information. And look for any suspicious activity. For more information or to report fraud, call Medicare at 1-800-MEDICARE or call your local Medicare SHIP program at 1-800-252-9240. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com. And we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And now joining us on the phone, we have speaker, author, chair of the Public Policy Committee of the California Association of Long-Term Care Medicine and geriatrician, Dr. Michael Wasserman. Welcome, Mike. Welcome. Thank you so much, Mara. Just so happy to be on your show. Thank you so much for for being here. And I just want to mention for our listeners and a reminder for you, there's like a half a second delay when we talk like this. It's good for people to understand that. So thanks so much for being here. You know, um, I heard you speak on a Zoom meeting with the Great Panthers. And that's what made me interested in having you on the program because I felt like what you were talking about was so important regarding long-term care system. No, I'm I'm so glad to hear that. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who really don't either really understand what long-term care is and what it means and, I think there's a lot of assumptions people make. So, so hopefully we'll have a chance to, you know, talk about that and help help your listeners. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. And um, I, before we jump into that, though, could you could you give our listeners a little bit about your background so they know who you are? Yeah, so I'm I'm a geriatrician, which is a physician who takes care of older adults. We are. Um, literally uh, in, in, at risk of becoming extinct. Uh, there, there aren't that many of us, and I think that is its own separate issue and problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I, I've spent my whole career taking care of older adults. Um, I've worked in, in the areas of quality and specifically in the long-term care arena for close to 40 years. Wow, Okay. Um, why do you think that that's becoming extinct? Uh, well, uh, you know, unfortunately, even when I went to medical school and told people, told doctors that I was interested in geriatrics, they, they said, well, why would you want to do that? Mm-hmm. And, and, and what's crazy is I hear from young doctors who are interested in the field of geriatrics that they hear the same thing today. And with our growing older population, um, the need for physicians who really understand what it means to care for older adults is to me one of the single most important things uh, our healthcare Mm -hmm. system needs. 
You know, I can totally relate to that because um, I specialized in geriatrics in graduate school as well. And um, I did my predoctoral internship in, in geriatrics. And that, and I finished graduate school in 1992. And I remember several supervisors asking me that same question, why would you want to do that? You know, in its own way, I think we all have to recognize that there is a worldwide issue around ageism, and and it's it's very complex. I think a lot of people, uh, even older people, have their own ageist tendencies. I think out of some fear of talking about their own um, foibles and 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 concerns and. Uh, it's just a topic that many, many people avoid. And at the same time, I think there are various societies that some societies really revere and respect their elders Mm -hmm. and other societies don't really seem to. Yeah. I don't think that we're one that seems to, to do that. Um, yeah, I so, you know I I think I I think I, that is a concern I think we must have that that there's a lot of things that go on in our society that would call into question our commitment to older adults. Mhm, mhm. And I know the that long term care is one of the places where we see that problem. <sighs> yeah, and and you know I I first of all I define long term care as including people who live in their own homes or now there's a growing population of older people who are homeless or unhoused or unsheltered um, and who need help and assistance to people who live in assisted living facilities, who live in group homes, memory care, and then finally nursing homes. And there's this presumption that no one would ever want to be in a nursing home and no one should be in a nursing home. And the reality is, We all need to be cared for. And for every individual, that's going to mean something different. And there are always going to be a population of individuals who need what a nursing home provides. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. Right. You know, my own mom is in a nursing home. You know, she lived in assisted living until a year and a half ago, and she's 94. And she just couldn't be in assisted living anymore. She needed the care of a nursing home. There's just no, we kept it, we kept her out for as long as we could. You know, I, I, I could get in trouble for this, but because I, I think one of the challenges of talking about nursing homes is there are 15,000 nursing homes in the United States. And I would venture to say that only a relatively small percentage of them, say 10 to 20 percent, are are homes that we would all want to be in and we could be proud of. And there's also a percentage of nursing homes that we've failed. We have failed our, our beloved older adults. But but if we had nursing homes that that were the type of nursing homes that I think we are capable of of having, I've often conveyed the idea that when I was in college, I, I lived in a dorm. I had a roommate. I ate in the dining hall every day. I went to 
class and activities every day. And I had some of the best times of my life. And, mm-hmm. and I think the best nursing homes could be considered very similar. Mm-hmm. But I think the problem is we haven't actualized that as the norm. Right. I know that you mentioned that to me that you advocate, that you volunteer as an advocate for older adults. Uh, is that in, are, the, are they in nursing homes? So my advocacy has really grown since COVID hit in relation to the fact that I think many people uh, and many caregivers, but, but, but a lot of people are upset with the way we deliver care to older adults in this country. And I'm mm-hmm. someone who believes if you don't like the way things are, you should really do everything in your power to try to change it. And I, and I, I think there, there's a, a belief that we can't change things or that the system is too difficult to change or we, cannot, we can't influence public policy and things along those lines. And I, I have always been someone who just doesn't take no for an answer and refuses mm-hmm. to believe and, and, and refuses to believe that anything is impossible. And so um, I've learned a lot in the last few years about how to navigate um, uh, our, our, our county, state, and federal government, how to, how to um, get involved and engaged with, with our uh, elected officials and our government officials. And like anything, I think, I think you have to learn the system and learn how to get involved. And so with that, I have really made a point of being involved at the local state and national level of, of policy. And, and that's where I consider myself a, a full-time advocate for, for older Mm -hmm. adults. So, so what are some of the issues that you see that you feel that, you know, that we really need to change like immediately the, the biggest issues that are going on in long-term care for older adults? Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think, you know, I I think the biggest problem in long-term care in general and nursing home care in particular is just how the system is structured. And it, it's unfortunate that um, the, the system tends to be structured for monetary gain rather than for care. And, and look, I don't have anything against anyone in business making a profit, but I think when you're delivering care to vulnerable people, you have a moral and ethical responsibility as you attempt to uh, run a business and, and be profitable. And I think, I think there is a need to balance uh, the, the business side with the moral and ethical side. And, and I think that uh, we've, we've literally failed at that. And, and, and oftentimes, and, and by the way, this isn't just nursing homes. We could look at health insurance companies. We mm-hmm. could look at some hospital systems there's we could look at any number of businesses that will put profit before people mm-hmm. but 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 when your when your business is the care 
of vulnerable individuals, I think putting profit before those people is, it can be, and in the face of something like COVID, can actually be deadly. Mm-hmm. Certainly unethical. <laughs> right. Well, I, 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 you know, and that's the interesting thing is um, it's not illegal to be immoral. Right. And I think we need to consider that as we set up the structure of things like nursing homes and other long-term care and health care system. And I think as a society, we really need to come to grips with this and decide what really matters to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you have me thinking about the way our society looks at older people and what are the priorities. And, you know, I live here in Texas. And and during COVID, our own, you know, <laughs> lieutenant governor said that older people were willing to die for the economy. So, you know. Oh, you, you- you, you've given me flashbacks. I actually wrote an op-ed piece that was published in the um, in one of the New York newspapers that specifically was in response to that statement by the Texas Lieutenant Governor. It was so upsetting to me. Um, and look, I, I do not. If 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 he wants to uh, sacrifice himself for his grandchildren, mm-hmm. that is fine. And honestly. I don't disagree that in a heartbeat, I would, I would sacrifice myself for my grandchildren. How, however, however, this is a big however, I wouldn't expect my grandchildren to not worry about killing me. Right. And, <laughs> and when, we were dealing, when, we, when we were dealing at the beginning with COVID, it was very clear very quickly that if we weren't careful – we could be putting our older loved ones in harm's way. And, and what family would want to have a legacy where they knew that they were responsible for killing grandma or grandpa? I, I just don't mm-hmm. buy that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's, it's a very cold view of, of, the, of the world. It's, it's very cold. Um, and I guess some people are that cold, but I don't think that a majority of people are when it comes to their own families. No, I, you know, and, and I think that's something what, you know, I think many families in the United States, you know, most, most people care about their, their parents and grandparents. And, mm-hmm. and I think we do sometimes forget that, you know, that other people have parents and grandparents too. So, I, I I completely agree with you on that. Mhm, mhm. And you know, when it comes, ageism is the one ism <laughs> where um, we're not just looking at other people, but we're we're actually going to be those people one day if we live long enough. You know that you that's know? the one thing that always it always really interests me that I. I think that's one of the things that ironically sometimes gets in the way of progress, that we don't 
to believe that. And, and it's really weird, but I, I think our elected officials, like we have senators who are 90 years old who, you know, who promote mm-hmm. policies that are, are ageist. And, and it, it always sort of flummoxes me as to why that happens. But maybe it's because they don't want to admit their own mortality and their own foibles. Right. Right. And, you know, and some people, if you have enough money, then you can escape the effects of ageism. So that's another part of it. Right. You can well, afford to pay you, for help. You you bring a, an important issue to bear, and that is um, poor older people in rural areas, poor older people of color um, really lack in the resources. And, and you know, I, I to get a little political here, there's a big push to keep people out of nursing homes and to to bring assistance to people to stay at home. And one of my concerns is that that assistance is primarily going to help wealthier, older, Caucasian women. And that older, poor people of color are going to be the ones who end up still needing nursing homes. Mm-hmm. And I would hate, I would hate to see that, that to be an unintended consequence of efforts to keep people in their own homes. Um, yeah, I could see that because it, you know, a lot of the costs are out of pocket, <laughs> stay at home and to, to have it be a place where it's, safe for an older person to live and to have the care that they need. Um, And very few services will take Medicaid at home. I I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I I don't think that you can get very much care at home on Medicaid. No, it it is very hard. And, you know, I've often – I think today if you want to approximate what a nursing home does in your own home – it could cost you upwards of $20,000 a month. Wow. Just think about that. Yeah. Right, cuz you're not sharing the care. You're you have that you have those caregivers for yourself. No, and and, and hiring caregivers, keeping caregivers, managing caregivers. Mm-hmm. That's running its your own small business. Right. You know, in a way, I'm, make, I'm making the case for why we still need nursing homes. And I, I just think that we don't, we haven't set the nurse. I think if we had nursing homes that were better focused on care and focused the, the, the financing and the money and the revenue that comes to them more effectively on, on the delivery of care, I think we could have better conversations about this. I, I think the mm-hmm. problem is a lot of nursing homes are set up as a business to make money in areas outside of the care of the people living in them. And and I think we have to own that and recognize it. Mhm. Mhm. And I and I agree that we do need nursing homes. <laughs> but we need you, to you know, that's, change that's, Go on. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that has concerned me the most about 
the the complaints about nursing homes um, is that there seems to be a side to that that where people think we just shouldn't have nursing homes. Now, I will also say that the growth of say the the, the small home or the greenhouse nursing homes. Uh, I think there may be better ways to provide nursing home levels of care. Um, But the concept of having a place for vulnerable older people with significant care needs to live, I think we need to recognize that. Yeah. Well, I've gone into, here in Texas, I've gone into several, when I was making home visits, I went into several personal care homes, as they call them here. Um, The problem is that they don't have the same kind of regulations as a nursing home. So they they vary greatly in the quality of care that you get. I've gone to some very nice personal care homes and some really horrible ones. Um, so it isn't automatically better. <laughs> no, you, you've put your finger on something that's very important, and that is um, whether it's a group home where there's like six people living in a house or an assisted mm-hmm. living facility or a nursing home. Um, number one, nursing homes are regulated. By the way, I, I'm I, I, when I say that, I don't know exactly whether that's good or bad because I have not seen the way we regulate nursing homes to be an effective driver of quality. But with that said, the group homes and the assisted livings do not have the same level of oversight and regulation. And I couldn't mm-hmm. agree with you more. You, you can find a group home that is owned by a, a retired nurse who delivers incredible care to the people living there. And you could find a group home that someone's running as a business that Mm -hmm. maybe they don't have the expertise on how to care for the people living in their group home. And, and so these, these are very real problems that we are facing that we really have to get our, our arms around. So, you know, I think that's the issue that you're, you know, issue that you're bringing up are really policy issues. Um, but are there things that family members can do that, ha- you know, that have loved ones who live in a nursing home to better, to for their loved ones to get better care or better quali- have a better quality of life? So, you know, as a geriatrician, um, I have never, I, I, I literally in my whole career never considered vocal family members to be difficult or a problem. And if I had a nickel for the amount of times I've heard other professionals complain about difficult families, I could retire again. But uh-huh. I, I believe that vocal family members, number one, have a right to be vocal. I I, I believe that family members need to be passionate and not be quiet. Now, with that said, recognizing that that passion and speaking up and being vocal, you're probably going to get folks who consider you to be difficult or a problem, I think is important because you don't, 
you're, you're trying to achieve something. You're trying to achieve better quality of care for your loved one. And, and I think you need to know the system. So when it comes to nursing homes, um, you want to make sure that you connect with your local long-term care ombudsman. You want to make sure that you know how to contact your state health department. Uh, you want to develop relationships with the director of nursing or the social worker or the administrator of the facility. So I think, number one, you want to you want to take a positive step forward with the leadership of the facility. Um, you also want to mm-hmm. find out, does that nursing home have a resident council? Uh, number one, every every nursing every nursing home resident has a right for their facility to have a resident council. Uh, they can even have a family council. Um, and the facility mm-hmm. has to has to respond and be accountable mm-hmm. to to those councils. But um, you actually don't see that happen. Um, and uh, I'm part of an organ a group right now called Moving Forward. Uh, we're trying to build some greater um, guidance for family members to to help support the role of having such resident councils because that's one of the tools. Yeah, I have actually two people from Moving Forward coming on next week. <laughs> I, I, I will tell you, it's a, it's a great. Um, it's a great program organization, um, really trying to develop actionable recommendations that can improve quality in long-term care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually starting a family council at my mom's place. Um, it's the, our first meeting is on Zoom this Tuesday, so I'm pretty excited you know, about that. If I have if I have one recommendation, what I've learned, and I'm a big advocate for family councils, but what I'm reminded of, the way the regulations are structured, is and, and as they should be, is that we are all trying to amplify the voice of the residents. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the challenges families have is sometimes forgetting getting lost because things are so complicated and, and we care for our loved ones who are in these facilities. Um, And I know that there's a lot of family members who have been really upset during COVID because they were kept out and they rightfully should be upset. Um, But keeping our focus on the individuality, the person centeredness of the resident Mm -hmm. um, is, is absolutely critical. And and also framing every request as focused on amplifying the voice of the resident. So if I'm a family that's upset that the facility's not letting us have uh, visitation or or reasonable visitation, I would frame it that my loved one who lives there has a right to have those visits rather than framing it from the perspective of the family. And I, I, I don't want to minimize the, 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 the perspective of the family, but if we want to be effective with the state regulatory agencies and with the local ombudsman, if we frame everything from the perspective of the resident, 
we will be more effective in our mm. advocacy. That's a really good point. That's a really good point to keep in mind for myself <laughs> when I advocate for my mom that this is what no, she and, needs. And that's why I brought that up because, you know, to most families, we're gear in the headlights with this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and there's a huge learning curve. There really is. I mean, I've worked in nursing homes for many years as a psychologist, and I've helped to advocate for residents. But when it came time for for me to be a family member of a resident, it it was all new. It was, <laughs> you know, I can use the things that I've learned from my professional experience, but it is a really different experience as a family member. Um, I've encountered the same thing, and uh, it's humbling. It's absolutely humbling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, you know, you're looked at differently. You're not looked at as a professional. You're looked at as someone who doesn't really know what's going on. Um, you know, I, 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 I hate to say this, but, there, you know, there is sort of an arrogance um, that is often encountered um, that, Again, we can let it upset us, but getting upset, uh, you know, I, uh, I swim, and I, I, I often tell people, the harder you try to swim, the, the slower you'll go and the more energy you'll expend. And it's the same way with, with, with trying to deal with a system like nursing homes. Uh, the more you yell and scream, you're just going to raise the temperature of everyone. And put lowering the temperature, trying to stay calm, maintaining the focus on your loved one, um, even sometimes to the point of repeating the question of, look, I'm trying to help my loved one, you know, help me understand. Being curious, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you know this better than I do, uh, you know, as a psychologist is being curious, being in a state mm-hmm. of curiosity, um, uh, to me really is the best way to approach ask questions. And by the way, in asking questions and then getting answers or not getting answers, whether you do it in person, whether you do it by email or by letter, you're creating a paper trail or a path for accountability. So if you're going to be able to say, look, I asked you this, you told me that, okay, let's, let's see how this fits. And uh, when you create Mm -hmm. accountability feedback loops, you're in your best position to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Really good. Um, So, you know, there's so much to talk about this, and I would love to have you come back on the program at some time in the future and continue the discussion if you'd like. Um, we're, we're out of I time would love tonight. That. <laughs> yeah, okay. I would love that. And I'll give you an idea. Once you get your family council going, why don't we see what's working and what's not working, and, and maybe we can get some examples to discuss to help other family councils out there. That would be great. That's a great idea. Okay. So we'll be in touch. Um, and meanwhile, um, if if listeners are interested in finding out more about you and about the your books, 
and the talks that you give, what what is the best way for them to do that? Well, you know, I, I'm I'm still hanging on to Twitter. Uh, I I I I, I uh, you can follow me at is at Wasdoc W A S S D O C. Um, I have my I sort of have that same love hate relationship with social media that we're all starting to have, but. <laughs> but that's probably the best way. Um, uh, you, the other thing you can do is um, you mentioned the California Association of Long-Term Care Medicine. You can find us at caltcm.org. Uh, we have a, a wealth of, of information. And uh, if, if you have questions there, you can bring questions our way. We have a lot of experts in this field who uh, love to be of help. Great. Okay. Well, I will post those on my uh, website post about this show um, later tonight. So if listeners didn't have their pen and paper, they could just go there and click on it and it'll be there. Um, So thank you so much again, Mike, for being on the program and, and I'll be in touch when I have some experiences with this family council so you can be back on and we can talk about it. Well, thank you again, Mara, for the opportunity, and thanks for what you do. Thank you, and you have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Um, Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaracarpel.com. All right. Well, that was a quick break, and we're back. Um, I'm just going to talk for a few minutes before uh, we have our musical guest, Tanya Anisimova, joining us once again. Um, and I just I started the conversation about family councils a few weeks ago, and last week I talked about the reason to have a family council, and I think Dr. Wasserman gave us the perfect reason to have a family council, and that is that it gives us um, an opportunity to have a voice. And um, and having a voice together with other families um, is really powerful. And as he mentioned, the, the facility has to listen. So if you're by yourself, they don't necessarily have to listen. Maybe you have difficulty putting into words um, what what your what difficulties your ha- your family member is having, but as a group, you can organize together how you're going to word it, how you're going to approach the right person, and the facility has to respond. They are required by law to respond and send a um, a liaison, a representative, to come and and answer questions um, at a family council meeting. So um, there are some obstacles to starting a family council that need to be overcome. Um, It's often difficult to let families know that there is a family council. Um, By law, the facility has to help with that, but it has been a bit of a challenge for my starting this virtual family council. Um, I made flyers. They kept disappearing, even though we had the okay of the administrator. The administrator was completely on board and the assistant administrator. But there are other 
um, staff members that were removing the flyers. Um, but they did send out a an email to all family members. They have the email list. They don't have to give us the list, but they can send out the um, invitation with the link to our Zoom meeting um, because we're doing it virtually to all family members. And not everybody reads their emails, but we, so we're starting out small. Um, Tuesday night so far we have seven people, but that's actually more than I expected. So seven is pretty good. And um, from the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care, they say even a small family group can be very effective. Um, many family councils have active participation by only about 10% of the families in, of residents in the facility, but it still can be powerful. So don't be discouraged by a small turnout. We're actually going to discuss at our meeting on Tuesday evening how to get the word out to other family members. And we're going to come up with another flyer, figure out a better way to get that out to people, ask the facility to again send out an email about the next meeting, and now have the um, people who are coming to this meeting on Tuesday to also spread the word to family members that they come into contact with in the facility. So that's one challenge. Um, the other challenge is that people are afraid that there will be repercussions, that there'll be retribution for being in a family council. And that should never be a, uh, a reason not to do it because it is actually a law that the facility has to help with a family council. And there actually, there is a law that is being worked on to make it, um, to make it a requirement that every facility at least try to have a family council, that the actual administration helps to create a family council, even though administration does not come to meetings and um, staff members do not come to family council meetings. It's only family or very close friends who are um, the caregiver or the supportive person for the resident in the community. and. Staff members only come to meetings when they are invited. Um, so I'm going to continue talking about this after our first meeting. Um, it's going to happen on Tuesday. And I, um, I wrote a blog about the reasons to start a family council. So if you go to my website and go to the blog page, you'll find that blog and I list the reasons as well as the law that supports family councils in the facilities throughout the United States. Um, any, and that is any facility that takes federal funding. So if they take Medicare or Medicaid, then they are required to follow that law. All right, so on that note, we are going to go to some of the music of our next guest um, who will be joining us in a few minutes to talk about her music, and that is cellist Tanya Anisimova, who will be joining us from Washington. 
Welcome, Tanya. Welcome back. Thank you, Marla. I'm glad to be back. Thank you for having me. And hello to all of your listeners. Yeah, so it's wonderful to have you back um, with your beautiful music. <laughs> um, the last time you were on... I'm glad about, you're enjoying you were, it. Yeah. Um, so the last time you were on was about a year ago. What have you been up to since then? Well, it has been a really busy year. I have performing, I have been composing, I have been sending my students to the uh, competitions, and uh, there are some winners, which I'm really glad about. Mm. Um, so life, life goes on. Um, you know, when the war started, now it's already a year, over a year yeah. ago, I can't believe it. Yeah. Um, I was in such a shock. Uh, Marla, I couldn't really breathe properly. And um, I felt um, uh, I, it was an agony, basically. And then I spoke with our mm-hmm. very close friends in Ukraine, and they said, Tanya, the best way you can fight for us is to keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's no, not worth doing good to anyone that you are just sitting there closed up and suffering you need to show how strong you are and just keep going and since then it seems that the um you know my life path it has always been like this the things that i need mm-hmm. that i'm really attentive they turn up my way there's a wonderful um, project here in dc it's called um the Partners Global, Partners Global, it's an uh-huh. organization that basically connects various artists uh, with communities, and their theme, especially for this past year and for this current year, is resilience, art mm-hmm. and resilience. Mm-hmm. And it felt so. I it rang with me so naturally that I performed for them um, in December and with the podcast and interview and uh, it just helped me to, you know, when I connected with these people and shared my art with them, it was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. So, yes, life has been kind. How was yours, Marla? Very good. Yep, yep. It's, mm-hmm. it's very, <laughs> everything's good. Um, and I was just thinking when you were talking, when you were talking about what your friend in Ukraine told you, um, it really seems that that is, is the way that people in Ukraine have been like, you know, I know, uh, you know, my sister-in-law is from Ukraine and so she's been in touch with her friends who are there and, you know, they're in keep and they're going to work. They were going to work even when bombs were dropping. So, um, that's pretty incredible. These people are so heroic. These people are so courageous. They really show an example to the whole world. I think mm-hmm. it's just such mm-hmm. a, it's just such a, such a strength. And, um, you see, they, they, 
um, I can't believe that this was not so long ago, just over 30 years ago, it was the same country with the Russian Federation. It was the USSR. Look at these people now. They're so very different from the crowd in uh, Russian Federation. Those, right. Those right. folks are so scared. They're so very afraid. And of course, the punishment is very hard. If you are against mm-hmm. war, then you you go to prison. So it's really absurd. But right. even with that, you see how how meek they are. How they they just take whatever comes their way. They don't really they don't protest. And look at the Ukrainians and their resilience and their strength mm-hmm. and their spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see the democracy is a powerful thing. And it works quickly because it's natural to, to humans. People observe it very quickly. You see, they're right. Uh, we speak with our friends in the Ukraine. We speak with them regularly, almost every day, and they are very strong. They are Russian-speaking people. Uh, Valery Batanets is the name of the uh, uh, the male friend, and his wife Tatiana Batanets. Um, uh, this is a couple. Uh, she's an art historian. They're Russian-speaking. They, my mm-hmm. husband Alexander, uh, has known them since teens, since their teens. And uh, but you can't believe how their attitude towards anything Russian has changed. It's just such a catastrophic, catastrophic uh, right event that happened last February. We, I think yeah. we will understand all the consequences much later. We will understand. That, I mean, there are some, some uh, positive things, but there are so many. Uh, the lives are broken. The lives have changed irreversibly. Um, it's it's really, really hard. It is. But they're strong. But they're staying strong. We spoke with them, and uh, he's painting. He's continuing to create, and he's working. He's writing articles and teaching. So it's really amazing how these people continue to live life, the new normal, as you. <laughs> as right. You, uh, I, I'm quoting you right now. Of course, it was in a right. different context, but still, new normal. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yes. And it's great that you have you know, that you've gotten busy and and living your life and doing things to create and to encourage other people, inspire other people. Um, Did you recently write the the piece that we just played, the Appalachian Dreams? Is that a recent piece of yours? Yes, it is the, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Of course. the um, usually I, I write for an occasion, and in this case, uh, it was a concert that I was preparing for, which took place on March 4th here in Maryland. And I uh, knew that I was going to write something for a mandolin player, which I met recently. He has Ukrainian and Russian roots, just like myself. Mm-hmm. Um, he um, is a virtuoso. And um, I thought, where should I draw uh, my inspiration from? Uh, recently, I have been seeing the Appalachian Dreams in a 
literally, I have seen the mountains, Blue Ridge Mountains in my dreams. Mm-hmm. Because that's where we, mm-hmm. uh, my husband and I spent 12 years, uh, the, the first, basically the first um, decade uh, in, uh, uh-huh. in two years, in, uh, uh, in, um, from 2001. We lived in um, uh, Stony Creek. It's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar, it's a wintergreen ski resort. It's a very beautiful okay. place in Appalachian like, Mountains. It's mm-hmm. a Shenandoah mm-hmm. Valley and Rockfish Valley. Very, very, oh, yeah, that's really heaven. Beautiful place. area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And luckily, we, we met some amazing people there, too. So it's not just the nature that had inspired me, but also the folks that we met and still continue to be in touch with. It's like a world in a miniature. There are Germans, Italians, Austrians, mm-hmm. Australians, uh, the whole world, and many people from California as well. Um, so uh, that basically was my inspiration. And, you know, I have a Chechen blood in me as well, and Chechen people are mountain people too. So when I was uh-huh. little, I... I was taken to the mountains and we walked the slopes in uh, Chechnya. So mountains are really, I have an affinity for the mountains. And I love uh, mountainary landscape. Of course, I couldn't understand a thing of what local people were saying in Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) When you hear this dialect, you just go, what? (laughs) But anyway, it was uh, very different, uh, but beautiful. So that was inspiration. I basically, it was easy. Uh, okay. The piece basically wrote itself. Yes. Now, we're going to play another mm-hmm. piece that you sent, um, an homage to Janice Starker. Can Can you tell us about that mm-hmm. before we play it? Mm-hmm. Yes, homage to Janice Starker. I believe I wrote it shortly after I learned about his passing. Uh, it was mm-hmm. back in 2012, I believe. Uh, no, it was actually in 2013. Oh, it will be, be, be 10 years already. Oh, mm. I understand how fast the quickly time flies. Uh, Janusz Starker was an eminent cellist, uh, born in Hungary. He was a really well-trained, uh, the, the, the best, best Hungarian musicians or people descending from the best Hungarian musicians trained him. And he met a wonderful composer when he was young, Zoltan Kodai, who was basically one of the main two composers in, uh, uh, in, in Hungary of that time, the early 20th century. So Janusz Starker was from the Russian Jewish immigrants family uh, I don't know how they ended up being in Budapest, um, but he, he was born there. And then he traveled when he was um, in his 20s, I believe. He traveled to the United States and decided to stay there. I met Janusz when I came here in, in early 90s. I played for him, and he mm-hmm. liked my playing very much when I recorded violin works by Bach on a cello, and it turns out that I'm still the only one who has recorded all of them on a cello. Back in 1999, I I sent him my CD, and he responded with wonderful comments. 
And then we started to exchange letters, and uh, I sent him my recordings and some of my transcriptions, and he would write back. So it was a, a very nice contact for me, very inspiring. So obviously when okay. he passed away, I felt something something clicked. You know, I, I felt um, to, uh, to create something uh, because mm-hmm. I, I was really sad. And the piece uh, came to me, and since then, I think it's it's popular. People, I think other cellists like to play it, not just me. People order uh, my score um, online, and um, I hear about uh, people including this piece in their programs. So I'm really grateful that this piece is finding new listeners. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to play some of it right now, and then we'll come back after after we play a little bit of that, okay? Okay, sure. All right. Beautiful. 
Tanya. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, so Tanya, if um, listeners are interested in hearing your music and downloading music, purchasing music or scores to play your music, or if your calendar of where you're performing, what are the best ways for them to do that? Probably uh, the best way would be to go to, uh, if they want to purchase my uh, scores, if there are musicians who are interested in playing my music or just learn more about me, maybe they should visit my website, danianisimova.com. It would be great if uh, if they want to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Tanya Nisimova. Then they can actually view... Uh, the Appalachian Dreams piece, um, they can see the video, watch the video. It was well. Okay. Um, I really, uh, I'm really happy with how it turned out. The the frame, the picture, the colors that the uh, um, the engineer chose. So it's uh, it'll help them observe the piece. And they, there are other pieces. And uh, my current project is to record the Bach works for violin again, now 20 years later, with all of the experience that I have accumulated. So I'm actually going back to the studio next month and beginning that mm. already. Yeah. Okay. So there will be some of this that will be posting on YouTube as well. Okay, great. Yes. So mm-hmm. I will post the links to those on my website post about this program so people can can go there and check it out um thank you so much for coming back for those who are interested if there are adult uh, uh, cello players or students uh, they may uh, be interested in joining us in louisiana in um uh, New Orleans area this summer because there will be an international institute. It's not just for the cellists. It's actually for various uh, players. So they can just mm-hmm. check. Um, I'll post something about it uh, on my Facebook and uh, my website. Uh, uh, my Facebook page is Tanya Nisimo Cellist and Composer. I will post about that. It's a beautiful program. Uh, it's on the campus of an old monastery uh, it'll be one week long, the last week in August, and we will be it'll be a very unusual summer um, program because we will I will teach them how to improvise uh, on a spot. I we will probably play one of my pieces, and we will also they can also play what they they want for me. And I'm sure that other faculty members are also great. There are various instruments represented, so. Uh, we can invite people to look into it as well. Great. It's called International Music Institute. International Music Institute. Okay. So I'll be sure to post that as well. Great. Um, Thank Thank you you. so much for for being back on the program and bringing your beautiful music with you. (laughs) Um, Thank you, Marla. I'm always... Uh, glad to be because it's, I enjoy hearing your voice. But the first, the first thing was like, Tanya, you're back, and I'm already okay. <laughs> this voice just makes me feel makes me feel much better. 
Well, we'll have you back again. All right. So absolutely. Okay. You have a okay. wonderful nice night. Okay. Nice to you. All right. Thank you. Same you here. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. So we've come to the end of another program. And before we go, let me let you know what's coming up. Next Sunday, April 23rd, we'll be back live with another great program. And we'll have two guests, Alice Bonner and Mayreed Painter. And they are both from the um, Moving Forward Nursing Home Quality Coalition that Dr. Wasserman was talking about. So we're going to talk more about improving quality of life for residents now and in the future. And if you want to hear tonight's program again and read the information from this show, get those website links that we talked about with um, both guests on the program. Um, You can go to my website later tonight, and all of that will be there, including the podcast, drmaricarpel.com. And you can also hear this program in five minutes from now. Um, at directly at blog talk radio b l o g talkradio.com slash your golden years and you can also hear it in five minutes on apple podcasts be sure to follow me on facebook dr mara carpel your golden years to find out about any upcoming um, events blogs shows etc this show was produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions and sponsored by AMightyGoodTime.com. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Michael Wasserman and Tanya Anisimova. And thank you to Art. Thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night and inspiring week. And remember, youth has no age. Good night, everyone. Stay safe. Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any information on this program. 